0: All right. My name's Catherine, if you don't know me. I've been here a while. Um, But we will be in 1 Corinthians 9 today. Um, If you have a Bible app, pull it open. If you have a Bible, open it up. Because there are 27 verses in this chapter, and no, I could not reasonably fit everything into the slides. So you're going to have to actually use your Bible. Sorry. Um, As we approach this chapter, it's important to recognize that the author, i.e. Paul, did not set out to write a textbook, and he probably didn't know exactly what plans God had for his, for his written work. He wrote a letter to a struggling church. The beginning of chapter 9 seems somewhat disjointed and difficult to understand without being set in its context with chapter 8 as a precursor. So I think we need a little bit of a Netflix recap before we continue. So last time an overflow... Dave set us up with some of the main themes that we should carry forward in our study of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 8, Paul addressed the issue of how to regard food that had been sacrificed to idols. Essentially, was it okay to eat or not? Chapter 8 also gave us the guideline for when it comes to moral gray areas. Not explicit or implicit sin as defined by the Word of God, but those matters left up to personal conscience and conviction. And so we must do the following. We must honor our own consciences. We must refrain from passing judgment on our believing brothers and sisters over matters of personal conscience. And again, that's not talking about actual sin as defined in the Bible, which we should discourage each other away from. And we should bear with the members of the body of Christ and refrain from enforcing our spiritual liberty at the expense of loving the body well. Okay, is everybody caught up? Okay. So where are we headed? This week, if I had to choose one key verse from this chapter as a good summary, it might be verse 12, which says, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Actually, it has a little tag lead, and it says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So this verse is important all by itself, with or without context. At face value, it lets us know that, number one, part of life as a believer involves putting up with things. Number two, the gospel can be hindered. And number three, we have a choice in the matter. So today we're gonna explore the following related question, which is, in what ways can believers hinder the gospel? Heavy stuff. So, There are four categories or barriers to the gospel that we can identify in this chapter alone. We should always observe before we interpret or apply, so let's observe. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, which are the earthly brothers of Jesus, and Cephas, that is Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have the right, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Okay, so what is going on here? That doesn't seem to be related at all to bearing with right okay so in this section of his letter paul is presenting a defense of his rights as an apostle he's also presenting what those rights are so the rights of an apostle according to paul here are right to hospitality from the church when they come to visit which is costly right to bring family with them and also have their families partake of that hospitality and the right to receive their living from the church and not the work of their hands like Paul, who was a tent maker and who planted churches by going and living and working in an area for a time, or those apostles and faithful believers who earned from outside sources such as Barnabas, who had productive land and other claims to wealth and was a church benefactor. Here's some more historical and cultural context for you guys from a brilliant commentator named David Pryor. There were those in Corinth, as we know, who were constantly questioning the authority of Paul, especially his claim to be an apostle. Their idea of an apostle was a man with authority who let everybody know that he was an authority. They saw Christian leadership in terms of being masters and not servants. They slated Paul because he was not like that. He was too weak, too soft to willing to deny himself his freedom in Christ for the sake of others. Can you imagine someone calling Paul soft? I don't see it. Um, So it makes me wonder kind of what the people of Corinth were really like. Uh, Maybe they were not not the nicest culturally. Um, The people in the church in Corinth we were surrounded by a culture that was obsessed with physical, social, and material power. Does that sound familiar? And the church there was also obsessed with defending their own power, influence, and freedoms. We, in this time and place, also struggle with barrier number one, which is a preoccupation with afforded rights. Okay, so for the sake of this talk, I don't really I don't really like rights by itself Um, so for the sake of this talk that word rights could also mean liberties entitlements or standards okay and these are a few social um, preoccupations the first one being wealth so what standards entitlements or rights could someone expect to receive because of their wealth likewise notoriety, or fame and social standing? And finally, what standards, entitlements, or rights could someone expect to receive because of their achievements, their merit or personal accomplishments, even achievements, quote unquote, for the, God, for the church and for God? So let's read the rest of this section. Starting in verse seven, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? who tends a flock and does not drink the milk. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest." If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their, get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So between verses 1 and 14, the first chunk of this chapter, Paul is presenting his case to the Corinthians like he's a man on trial. It's a lot of legal terms. So verses 1 through 6 explain what rights he is afforded, and verses 7 through 14 outline why Paul is qualified to receive those rights as an apostle. And we don't have time today, unfortunately, to unpack all of this, but let this summary suffice. Here are some important, but not the most essential, points of this section. Number one, Paul's discussion about his rights as an apostle is personal. I mean, if you're reading this text, it's kind of salty. Uh, he's he's coming across to the church of Corinth because he has an air of disappointment about it, about them, and about their behavior but he's doing more than one thing in this section. He's providing a personal defense and he's also appealing to, those, to the consciences of the members of the Corinthian church to make a case for the supremacy of the gospel. This passage carries the same topic and arguments from the previous sections in chapter eight and it reads very much like a pastor using real life illustration to drive a point home. Number two, Paul's claim to the rights of an apostle is legitimate and scriptural So Paul's appeal encompasses both the customs and the concepts of the day and the commands of the Lord in the Old Testament and in the New. So Numbers 18, the Levites received food from the sacrifices that the rest of Israel made to God as a perpetual share in the labors of the camp. They were paid and cared for in their work through that avenue. And Jesus in Matthew 10 said... Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your money, for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. They were literally instructed not to take any provisions with them when they shared the gospel. So Paul is essentially telling the church in Corinth, yes, I have a scriptural right for you to pay me for what spiritual service I give to you. So this sounds a little bit like a spiritual invoice until we get to the most essential point in in verse 15 when Paul says, but I have not used any of these rights and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. This is not soft language here. I would rather die. It's pretty intense. I would rather die than to allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. So what is Paul boasting about? What does that mean? So the word boast in Greek is kalkema, which could mean to glory in or rejoice in or to boast in as if to take credit for. So some of you guys who have been hearing sermons from really good theologians for some time might be familiar with the fact that the word love in English has about four to six Greek equivalents and each with their own connotation. It's like the English language falls short of the needs of the Greek language when we're translating those words. Well, this may be one of the few times I've ever come across where the opposite is true. The Greek word that literally translates into boast in English could mean to rejoice in or to brag about. And these are two very different things. Paul plays on the difference here between verses 15 and 16. So in verse 15, Paul is essentially saying, I would rather die than have someone take away my joy. He goes on in verse 16 to say, For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, i.e. bragging to take credit. That's the other one. For necessity is laid upon me, other translations say I am compelled. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but, not, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So obviously, Paul is not taking credit for his personal spiritual achievements here as if that were a thing. He calls himself a steward, which is a person who has no right of ownership and must eventually answer to the real owner of the property, which is Jesus. Consider this quote from the Gospel Coalition's Dr. Stephen Um. And what is it that has allowed Paul to set this aside to break out of the economy of entitlement to work free of charge? to abandon the pageantry of the powerful, eloquent leader in favor of being himself. Simply put, he has found something better than rights and entitlement. Paul calls it a privilege to present the gospel free of charge to, this, to the church, particularly in Corinth. It is his reward. i got to confess, I don't, I don't often live like that. Paul is relinquishing his rights as an apostle for the joy that it brings him, but this is making his life that much harder. Now he has to earn his keep wherever he goes because he refuses to presume upon the hospitality of the church. His entire life mission is the gospel, no matter what that costs him. He's also encouraging the people in the church of Corinth to view their rights in the same way, optional and to be given up for the sake of others. But Paul isn't done with this idea yet. In verse 19, he continues, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So this part of Paul's appeal exposes another way in which believers may hinder the gospel, another barrier, which is a difference in culture. Let's consider the difference between Western or American cultures versus diverse global cultures. So Paul specifically states that when he is around Jews, he acts like a Jew. When, he, he, when he's around them, he adopts their customs and mannerisms, that he might win those under the law. When he's around Gentiles, he adopts certain Gentile traits that he might win those outside of the law. This is like what we do when we go to the temples in Houston or New York. It is customary there, often, for women to cover their heads, either wearing hijab or wearing a shawl, and for everyone to remove their shoes in the temple. And in a mosque, particularly, men and women sit separately. Now, we don't do that at church. We are under no religious or cultural obligation to do so, but we still do that in those spaces to avoid offense. Imagine how much damage we could cause to our relationship with those people if we did not respect their cultural standards and instead clung to our liberties. Another way that a difference in culture can affect or inhibit the gospel is the difference between... Christian versus secular culture. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Christians in America have a subculture. We go certain places at certain times. We celebrate certain holidays. We have rituals and procedures in place that we come to expect and love. We worship in specific ways with specific music. So for a minute, put yourself in the shoes of a non-Christian and imagine that you have no prior context for church or for church people and you meet a Christian who invites you to church, and you go. Personally, I think that if I were not used to this, and I went to church for the first time, I would be thinking these people are so weird. They're so weird. They're singing to somebody they can't see. I don't understand. So now imagine that if your Christian friend started ignoring your discomfort, they may say, well, this is just how we do things, and you have to do it this way because. So would worshiping or glorifying God in other manners, besides the manners we observe here at church, at TBC, in fact, be inherently wrong, as long as we worship in spirit and in truth? Does the Bible include a playbook for Sunday morning? So John MacArthur says this, if a person is offended by God's word, that is his problem. If he is offended by biblical doctrine, standards or church discipline, that is his problem. That person is offended by God. But if he is offended by our unnecessary behavior or practices, no matter how good and acceptable those may be in themselves, his problem becomes our problem. It is not a problem of law, but a problem of love, and love always demands more than the law. So how should we handle cultural differences between the West and the rest of the world? Or in fact, how should we handle differences between lifelong American Christians and the secular world? Simply put, if it isn't essential, feel free to let it go, or at least hold it loosely. Focus on what scripture says is important and use your liberty in Christ to adjust to the world around you so that you can witness. Paul also repeats another theme from chapter eight in the next verse. Verse 22, it says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. We discussed last week what weak believers were, according to Paul, in this context, but let's also make a new distinction and uncover another barrier to the gospel, which is a difference in learning or understanding. So consider weak believers, which could include those who are new to the faith or have been stewarded poorly by their church leaders, but also includes those who are temporarily weakened by trial. Also consider young believers, literally those who are chronologically younger than you are and therefore may, may, not will, but may have more to learn and experience. So how do we bear with these believers? In short, we do so with great patience, with repeating our points whenever necessary, just like you do in impact, and by imitating Christ's example, who condescended to the earth and bore our immaturity with great love. We become whatever people need us to be while championing the truth, never compromising the gospel, but applying it in a wide variety of contexts. Learning how to apply the gospel to a multitude of contexts takes a long time and a lot of hard work. And in his final installment in this section, Paul addresses this fact, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Is this a familiar passage to some of you? Raise your hand if you've heard this one before. This is the self-discipline passage. Yeah, this chapter's real light. Okay, so here's some historical and cultural context for the passages that you may have heard before. Bear with me here. So every 2 years, athletes would gather in Corinth to compete in amateur, which is unpaid competitions at the Isthmian Games. The closest thing we have now is the modern and postmodern Olympic Games. You guys ever watched the Olympics? Yep. This event is in the Corinthian church's backyard, the Isthmian games. It's literally in Corinth, so they know exactly what Paul is talking about here. So obviously when we're discussing Olympic or Isthmian athletes, we're talking about people in the prime of their physical health, usually young, who do a lot of crazy things to be the best athletes in the known world. They get up up early, they go to bed early, they eat exclusive diets, they spend hours in a gym, on a track, or in a pool. And they spend a lot of money on trainers and medical care. A lot. Self-discipline, or the art of saying no to what you want now for what you want most, is a given in this context. No, you can't sleep in. No, you can't eat Whataburger exclusively, though you would like to. And yes, you must send your trainer a video of your PR. So, to paraphrase Paul, In this section, these athletes work so hard for so long and risk everything for a reward that people will forget about in a year. But they put the church to shame. To paraphrase MacArthur, maybe the reason that most of us are uncomfortable sharing the gospel with the world is because we don't go to the gym. We don't eat healthy food. We don't rest correctly. And we ignore our trainers' texts. And I am saying we. I'm not a good Olympic athlete either, don't worry. So why do we tend to do that? Because we choose what is convenient, easy, and comfortable over what will make us strong. We are plagued by a lack of discipline, which is the fourth barrier. So a lack of discipline will manifest itself in different ways usually uh, an adherence um, or an allowance for sin nature Um, these are just a few that I've seen in the past six months in myself okay so there's way more examples than just these three but something that I have literally thought or said to myself about spiritual discipline in the past six months could fall under sloth which is I'll start tomorrow when tomorrow never comes Um, another one would be pride which is no I have what I need I'm good I have this under control I do not have it under control alas okay and the third one is comfort and security which is like saying what if I do it wrong it's scary I think I'll just stay here So when we lack discipline, our flesh controls our minds. We have to reverse that chain of command. Our minds must control our bodies, our actions, our decisions. We must take our thoughts, our words, and our deeds captive. Our appetites for what we want can't control us anymore. We are free we have to reverse that chain of command. So go back to verse 27 with me. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the phrase keep it under control is the Greek word dulagogeo. that's a mouthful, which is a verb that means to subject, to stern discipline or to claim as one's slave. Again, really soft language, Paul. Other translations of this verse literally say, I'm not making this up, therefore I beat my body and I make it my slave. That's uncomfortable. I don't like that. But the second half of this verse is also important. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here... Paul is again making a reference to athletic events. Who's, uh, who's run track? Who's done a field? Okay. Who's watched a track meet? Okay. Do you know what a qualifying heat is? Okay. Okay. So it is a precursory, a prerequisite race that will determine who gets to actually compete at the final race event for the prize, right? okay so if you don't make it out of the heat you don't make it to the final all right so so paul is saying here i need to exercise spiritual self-discipline so that i can actually walk the walk or run the run and not be exposed as a hypocrite so this passage is often used to emphasize how important self-discipline is to our personal relationship with god but Paul doesn't stop there, and that's, the, that's not really the focus of this chapter right now. It's applicable, but the focus is how spiritual self-discipline is also critical to our witness. It's not only internal, it's not only vertical, it's horizontal. Imagine sharing the gospel with someone and having them turn around and say, but what about your life has changed by this pursuit of Christ and you having nothing to say? Yes, you have liberty. And you can choose how to spend your time and energy, but consider what John MacArthur says, that even good things can interfere with the best. Fulfillment of freedoms can interfere with fulfillment of love. Following our own ways can keep others from knowing the way. A simpler way to say this could be, don't sacrifice what's best for what is merely good. So the idea of self-discipline and self-denial is not specific to Paul. Paul didn't come up with that. In fact, we'll read later in this letter that Paul imitates Christ, who said in Matthew 16, 24, and 25, If anyone would come after me, they let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever puts it down for my sake. Will find it. So the church should be ready to support pastors and missionaries materially. Barring sin, cultural customs are not inherently bad, and worship sets and church procedure are very good things. However, these standards, rights, and liberties in Christ are not exclusively for our personal benefit. They're not even for our corporate benefit, not exclusively. These standards, rights, and even entitlements also pale in comparison to the point of our lives as believers, which is summed up in verse 23. Some of y'all didn't realize that I skipped that one earlier. It says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So in Houston? Hello. So in Houston, can you tell I really like the Houston trip? Okay We worked with a guy named Dr. David Kim. So I didn't write it down, but something he seems to say a lot during his presentations runs along the lines of, "When you get to heaven, you may see people there that you did not expect, but they will be there, because God used you in your faithfulness." So let's press on in self-discipline and in service to all, putting our own needs and wants aside so that we may all share in the joy and the blessings of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word, even when it's a hard word, even when it exposes things we'd rather not know about ourselves. I pray over everyone in this room that we would hear what we need to hear in order to witness well, in order to be encouraged and inspired to pursue you and to pursue your gospel to the ends of the earth and as the chief end of our lives. I pray that as we discuss these concepts that we would form deeper bonds with one another and community and that we would be able to hear from you. Thank you for the gospel itself, that you sent your son, your very self, to earth to humbly live and to humbly teach and to humbly die and to defeat death and rise from the grave so that we could know 2,000 years later who you are. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.